0: Um, there are times when it feels a bit tiring to keep being a Christian. Um, obviously, that's if, if you're a Christian, this is particularly relevant to you, but I hope it'll be interesting to you if you're not a Christian. But there are times when it's, it is a bit tiring. Uh, when you're faced with what you're missing out on, um, what it costs you to be a Christian, You're confronted with other people doing things to you or treating things, treating you in particular ways because you're a Christian. Uh, There can be costs. Of course, we need a bit of perspective. Uh, It's not anywhere near as challenging for us here as it is for some people elsewhere in the world. Um, I met a Nigerian man uh, a little while ago. I think I've shared this with you, but it's really stayed with me, whose wife had been murdered just months before because he was a Christian. I mean, that is full on and we, that is very, very unlikely to happen to us. But there are real difficulties, even in Sydney, in Australia. Uh, there's, at a much smaller level, but they're real. There's the challenge of engaging with church. Um, some of you have been on a weekend away, Which I hope was great, but it might not have been, because there are all sorts of awkward, difficult people there, as usual with any church. You've got to make effort with relationships. You could be doing other things. Uh, There were parents who were up all night with their children just because they were in a different context and they'd made that effort. There's costs involved in being part of a church. There's costs involved in in keeping on trying to grow as a Christian. Holiness doesn't come easy and it's frustrating and there are sins which it would just be, frankly, easier to just forget about and kind of ignore. And there's other costs. There's costs at our workplaces and in our jobs. Uh, There's plenty of people who miss out on promotions because they're Christians. We're faced sometimes with the hostility and ridicule of others. There's real costs, and we feel this quite often, people feel that this here there's real costs in following the Bible's teaching in relation to sexuality and sex. There's there's the cost of giving up relationship possibilities. There's costs in staying faithful. There's the challenge for many of us of celibate singleness in a world that regards that as ridiculous. It's not ridiculous, it's wonderful but it can be a challenge. So why press on? Why hold on? I suspect many of you have answers to that question, but I want us to think about it again. Uh, As some of us have seen over the weekend, the writer of Hebrews, which we've just read some of, writes to encourage believers to press on, to not be mesmerised by what is before their eyes but to remember what it is they've been called to and keep going. And in the passage we read in chapter 12, it all comes to a head at the kind of finale of this composition uh, where the writer reminds his readers that they must hold on and not reject the gift they've been given. So let's have a look at that passage in Hebrews. It was page 1193. Um, Like I said, it's not that most of us don't kind of know in our heads and our hearts why we should press on, but we need to be reminded, we need to keep it at the front of our minds. So let's have a look at Hebrews 12 from verse 18. In verses 18 to 24, uh, what he does, the writer, is remind the readers and us what they have been made a part of through faith in Jesus. And he does this by contrasting kind of a great moment in the old covenant with the new covenant, the Jesus equivalent. In verse 18, he says what they haven't come to and then he says in verse 22, what they have come to. Now, what, he, what they haven't come to in verses 18 to 21 is basically his version of the description of Mount Sinai, which we read about in Exodus 19. It's a, that is a full-on moment, isn't it? Did you kind of catch that as it was read? I mean, it was really full on. They can't go near the mountain. God reminds them repeatedly, don't go near. And I'm serious about this, by the way, Moses. And Moses says, yeah, I know you already warned us. But he's like, yeah, but it really will kill you. And there's smoke and fire and it's incredible. And the living God came and met with his people. And the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, you haven't come to that. That was okay. That was okay. You've come to something much better. That was terrifying. But this is wonderful. As we'll see, it's still terrifying in a way, but it's beautiful. It's a moment of joy. It is. Well, let's have a look at verse 22 and following. He describes, he says, you've come to a perfect place with a perfect gathering and a perfect mediator have come to a perfect place. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Mount Zion is is no longer a reference to a particular geographical place. It's the idea of the mountain of God. It's just a kind of symbol of the place where God lives. Really important symbol in the Bible and actually the writer from the Hebrews has taken it from Psalm 110. Pursue that if you want to. It's the perfect place the heavenly Jerusalem. And there's the perfect gathering there. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly and to the church or the gathering of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. It's the perfect gathering. Thousands upon thousands of angels and all the saints in perfection gathered round, gathered by God the judge. I was talking to somebody, I was listening to somebody recently actually talk about being in the Olympic Stadium at London. Uh, there, are an English person on the day England won two gold medals in athletics, which is, you know, once in 100,000 years or whatever. And, and he said that it was just incredible. It was incredible. Packed stadium. And he could not hear his voice shouting. He just couldn't, couldn't hear. It was so loud, this deafening roar. Imagine what this will be like. That, that will be just a nothing. Thou, the, the billions of heavenly beings in their glory. Beings that if we saw one, it would be so terrifying we would fall down with fear. And they're shouting glory to Jesus because he's at the centre of it all. The perfect mediator to Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This massive gathering will be focused on this magnificent man the Son of God, who has stood in for us and won the victory on our behalf, offered his life as the sacrifice we needed. And this, he says, is what you've come to. We need to be reminded of that, I think. That is what we have in Christ. Not just what it seems like we have. Not just the slightly odd people sitting next to you in the pew. You can look at them if you want, it's okay. Not just the dilapidated building with the really bad heating. Not just the frustrating leadership, the disorganisation. Not just a kind of culture full of problems, boring announcements, a slightly unsatisfying small group. No, you've come to Mount Zion, covered in the great gathering, Seeing praise to Jesus. That's, that's what we've come to, brothers and sisters, and that's where we're headed. It's actually both here. It's what we've come to and where we're headed. And that too is terrifying in a way, isn't it? It's, it, it, it it's, there's no other way, to, it's, it's, but it's magnificent as well. The angels, did you notice, the angels are a joyful assembly. They're happy. They're delighted. This is wonderful. What, what a vision. What a thing to be a part of. And can I just say, this isn't really the main point of my talk, but can I just say, if you're not a Christian, this is a pretty good reason to become a Christian, to be a part of this. This is, this is the perfection that the universe was made for. You want to be a part of this gathering. Become a Christian. The beautiful and terrifying glory of this vision, though, leads the writer to stress something else. He leads the writer to, it leads the writer to a warning not to refuse it. And we need to hear that as well. Have a look at verses 25 to 27. He says first, make sure you don't refuse the one who speaks. And he says, if they did not escape when they refused him, him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Don't refuse the one who speaks. That is, don't refuse this new word. It was new for them. They'd already heard, most of his readers were Jewish people who'd already heard the Old Testament. They says, don't refuse this new message, this gospel about Jesus. Why not? Because you can't, you won't escape. If they didn't escape, and now he's thinking about God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, he's reflecting on the fact that they heard God, they were there at Mount Sinai and then they rejected him. He says, if, if they didn't, and, and they were destroyed, they didn't enter the promised land. That is this massive fact, which actually, if you look through Hebrews, it just, he's so preoccupied by the fact that people, they were there at Mount Sinai, and then they rejected God, and they were killed. And he says, if they didn't escape, well, you... You certainly will not if you refuse the one who is speaking. Why? He says why in the next verse, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. We saw that in Exodus 19, that the mountain shook. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. He's quoting the prophet Habakkuk. And he says the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, this is all a bit weird, but the big point is quite clear. He sees this idea, this this promise of shaking as an image of God's coming judgment. He says, the one who speaks is going to shake the earth again. That is, there's there's a climactic judgment coming, a finale of God's purposes in which he will radically transform the world. Um, I think a good illustration of this whole shaking and judgment is, have you ever kind of pruned a tree and as you're cutting off bits, they kind of just fall onto it, you know? But then at the end you shake the branches and they fall down and you're, aha, there's the finished tree. Maybe I've done that. Um, maybe nobody else has. Or if you're sanding something, sanding a piece of wood and there's sawdust everywhere and you can't really see it and then you kind of shake blow it off, and boom, that's what's left. And that's a kind of, I think it's like, he says, that's like what God's going to do with the world. He's going to shake it. And some stuff will be left and some stuff won't. There's a climactic judgment coming. By the way, that's not, that's, I just realized my language, that's nothing to do with that whole series of books called Left Behind. Actually, I think they're basically a mistake. This is an image of judgment, and we need to hear it. And the point is that the consequences of refusing God's word are dreadful. It's not fun to talk about this. Mostly when you do it, you get people getting a bit upset with you. But we should not kid ourselves, brothers and sisters, about the negative consequences of rejecting the gospel of Jesus. Christian faith is not just a hobby for this life. It's about being included or suffering exclusion from the sum of all perfection. God has not spoken to has spoken to us, sorry. God has spoken to us in his son Jesus, in the good news about him. He has invited us to the greatest celebration in the universe the joyful glory that the whole world was made for. And if we reject the message, we will not escape judgment. If they did not escape, neither will we. What then should we do? Well, verses 28 and 29 really sum it up. And they're beautiful, beautiful verses. Have a look there. Therefore, he says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, The kingdom that cannot be shaken really sums up the vision of the future that he wants us to have before our eyes. A A perfect kingdom, which will last forever. It is... The kingdom of Jesus, where his throne will be. It is permanent and secure and good. It's that beautiful gathering. And instead of refusing it, the writer says, don't don't do that. Instead of that, be thankful. Now, actually, that's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? So when you think about what he could have said there, what you expect him to say, you kind of expect him to say, Therefore, pray really hard and go to church all the time and maybe enter a convent and give away all your money and maybe become an Anglican minister. Actually, that will not help you probably. But he doesn't say that. He says, be thankful. And it's a reminder that this is something that is achieved. It's something that is just given to us not something we build for ourselves. Being a Christian is fundamentally about receiving a gift. It's not about building something for yourself. And what is required of you when you receive a gift? Just to be thankful for it. It's, uh, I say this, Roger and Roger, who are the other ministers, often pay for me when we go out for coffee. And that's because I just have this chronic inability to have cash. And I always feel a bit awkward about it. Um, and I often kind of try and keep a record and pay them back. And, but sometimes, you know, they just want it to be a gift. And it's a bit sad when somebody won't just receive a gift. When they feel like they have to pay it back or earn it. It defeats the whole purpose of giving a gift. Because if if they do pay it back, which by the way we can't with God, but if they do pay back or even if they try to, it just ruins the whole character of it as a gift. God hasn't given us a deal where we kind of, he gives us something wonderful and we kind of pay him back for the rest of our lives. He hasn't even given us a particularly good deal. He's given us a gift. And what is asked of us is to be thankful. He gave us his son to live and die and rise to save us and give us everything in the universe. And what we're called to do is be thankful. Sure, a lot flows out of that thankfulness. And that's because the gift God gives us changes our lives. It must, it has to, it always does. But what we're called to fundamentally is to receive the gift and just stay with it. And that thankfulness overflows as, as we see here, worship. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And the reason he just lands with is for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, You know, you kind of, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I kind of went, oh, you have to remind me of that at the end. You know, it was such a nice place to end, and then there's the consuming fire. But it's a good reminder that the God who has been gracious to us in Jesus, the God who calls us to that joyful assembly, is not a different God to the God on Mount Sinai. It's not another God, a God who somehow isn't fearful and dangerous anymore. It's the same God. It's just we're in a totally different space because of Jesus. But he really is that dangerous. And so our thankfulness has got to be full of reverence and awe. Brothers and sisters, let me urge you, let me urge us all, me too, to hear this exhortation to press on to not refuse God's gift but to receive it with thankfulness and let us live with it forever I believe actually a time is coming when it will be more difficult to be a Christian in Australia I might be wrong I hope I am but it seems to me that in various ways storm clouds are gathering and there will be more pressure not less and so I think we need to hear this encouragement to not refuse the one who speaks not refuse that gift because whatever comes at you whatever you will face whatever costs they cannot possibly be worth giving this up for they can only pale in comparison to the glory to be revealed when Christ returns. We have been brought to something wonderful. We have been made a part of something wonderful. We, we have it. Don't give it up. Can you imagine what it will be like to be there? Can you imagine how dreadful it would be to miss out? So let me urge you just to finish, to stand firm in faith, at work, at uni, in your family, with your friends, in your decisions, in your thoughts, with your mind, in your loneliness and fear and frustration. Stand firm in thankfulness and reverent worship because our God who is beautiful and dreadful beyond imagining, has given us a kingdom that will last forever. Let me pray. Lord, when we hear these words about the unimaginable glory you have called us to in Christ, we almost don't know how to react We want to, Lord, have hearts that are full of thankfulness and we want to stay with this vision for the rest of our lives. Father, we we thank you for this incredible gift you have given us and we pray that it would fill our hearts and lives and enable us to stand firm, come what may. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.